You are tuned in to the Green College Lecture Series, broadcast on CITR 101.9 FM and online at citr.ca. This podcast is sponsored by CITR. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Green College. We're here for the panel Trauma and Diaspora, and I'm Shyam Sarvadare, the Green College Canada Council Writer-in-Residence, and I'll be presenting the event tonight. To speak of trauma, is uh, to express it in form of art, is to come face to face with both the vulnerability of human beings in the social and natural world, and also to speak about the capacity for evil in human nature. To speak of, or write about, or photograph, or do performance pieces that involve some expression of trauma is to bear witness to horrible events. When the traumatic incidents are natural disasters or acts of God, those who are bystanders and observers sympathize readily with the victim. But when the traumatic event is of human design, those who are observers and bystanders are often caught between the victim and the perpetrator and often tend to turn away or ignore the crime and trauma because it is morally impossible to remain neutral in the conflict. The bystander is forced to take sides and it is tempting to take the side of the perpetrator because all that he or she asks is that the bystander do nothing. He or she appeals to our universal desire to see, hear or speak no evil. The victim, on the other hand, asks the bystander to share in their pain. The victim demands engagement and remembering. Those who speak out about trauma or express it in their art must often therefore contend with the tendency of the larger society to discredit, diminish, ignore or marginalize what they say. A look at the history of trauma and recovery shows that it is only when the victims themselves take control of the expression of the trauma they have suffered that any true healing takes place. The expression and investigation of the trauma, therefore, often depends on the support of a political movement. This is the example of sexual and spousal abuse of women, which is labeled and dismissed as hysteria. It took the feminist movement to expose the crime of sexual and spousal abuse and to lead the way to a proper exploration of trauma it caused. In the same way, it took the politicization of Vietnam vets and the anti-war movement for there to be proper discussion and exploration of the post-traumatic stress caused by war. In our own recent history in Canada, it took the political engagement of Japanese or Chinese Canadians of First Nations people for there to be a proper exploration of trauma caused to them and restitution and recovery. Diasporas like the Sri Lankan Tamil diaspora play an important role in keeping the rights and sufferings of the Tamil people in the homeland in the public eye of demanding that Western governments don't stand idly by. Artists have always had a very important role in bringing these crimes to the forefront, especially those committed to themselves, their families and their community. Artists have had an important role to play in the path towards healing. Today, we have on our panel a writer, a photographer and a professor from UBC Okanagan campus who all deal with and look at trauma in some form or other in their work. What they are looking at is the trauma experienced by people in the diaspora. Both the trauma people bring with them from the mother country and the trauma caused in the new land by racism and discrimination. The panelist's work also looks at the hiding of trauma by those who have experienced it in countries they left or in Canada and the effect of this silence around trauma on the next generation. The expression of trauma in art articulates the lives and voices of marginal people and describes the complexity of negotiating multicultural social relations. To commemorate a people's suffering in stories both written and visual and performative is to return that people to life, to rescue their history from oblivion, to rescue identities jeopardized by the threat of forgetfulness. Histories come alive again as artists bear witness. Our first panelist this evening is Dr. Janet MacArthur. Janet is an Associate Professor of English and Cultural Studies in the Faculty of Creative and Critical Studies at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan Campus. Her research interests are in autobiographical discourses. She has published and presented papers in early modern poetry, critical theory, settler memoir and illness narrative. She teaches courses on representations of extreme experience in autobiography, literature and film. Thank you very much for inviting me to come to this tonight and be part of it. I'm really, uh, over the last few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about placing uh, my readings of 
these books, uh, I don't know how many of you have read these graphic memoirs by uh, Art Spiegelman, Mouse 1 and 2. Mouse 1 was published in 1986 and Mouse 2 in 91. And then recently, this book, MetaMouse, came out in 2011, 2011, I should say, and it includes a CD-ROM. The Mouse Project began in the 80s when Art Spiegelman, who was the son of Holocaust survivors, taped his father talking about his experience as in Poland during the Holocaust. Because he was a comics guy, a graphic artist, he decided to create his father's story in comics form. So we have uh, the two mouse works, the early ones from the 80s and the 90s, and these really were a breakthrough in terms of graphic art or graphic novels, graphic memoirs and so forth. And as you know now, there are huge sections of chapters and indigo and so forth devoted to what we call graphica, but these are kind of the most famous. This is Art Spiegelman depicting himself as a young boy, and he's sitting in the car and his father and mother speaking in Polish about a survivor who was working as a member of the Sonderkommando. I'm going to talk a bit about this incident. They tell him some terrible things, and he, or his father does, and it has an impact on him. He's a very haunted guy. Images of Jewish victims during the Holocaust being hung are everywhere to be found in a lot of his work, even his work of 2011, Metamouse. And we'll talk about this haunting as a form of trauma, even though he didn't experience the trauma directly. This is a cartoon that he did and included in Mouse One. It's called Prisoner on the Hell Planet. And in this cartoon, he depicts himself uh, when he's in his 20s, he had a, a nervous breakdown, and um, it was around the time, just before his mother's suicide. But anyway, he depicts himself coming out of the subway in Manhattan in the garb of a, a concentration camp prisoner in the striped uniform. He identified very deeply with the Holocaust. This is a, the back of the cover of Mouse One, and notice this is, I don't know if you can see it very well, but we have his, a map of the suburb of New York City. Regal Park where he grew up and that's embedded in a map of Poland and his father telling him the story of the Holocaust. So his life is very much informed and his reality growing up by the Holocaust itself. And this is his depiction of his father telling him the story and that's him smoking a cigarette there on the floor. He depicted the European Jew as a mouse, as those of you who have read the book know. His mapping includes his home state of New York, but it's embedded in a drawing of Auschwitz with the crematoria. He also does things like he creates his family tree in his research of the family, most of whom perished in the Holocaust. And that's the family tree he creates. And then this is the family tree after the Holocaust. Very few people survived. His father's one brother and so forth, and a brother of his mother. Anyway, I want to look at this as a kind of a, a genealogical project where he comes to terms with trauma. Art Spiegelman is probably one of the most famous of what's become known as the second generation survivors or children whose parents survived the Holocaust. He's most famous because of the writing of Mouse. His various comics projects can be read as a form of working through the traumatic experience of his parents, I believe. They were, uh, both of them survived Auschwitz. Long ago now, Elie Wiesel, the famous Holocaust survivor, called people like Art Spiegelman the children of Job because even though he wasn't a trauma theorist, he realized that many of these children carried the burden of coping with the aftermath of the Holocaust in their family lives. As studies of trauma have been applied to representations of it in literature and film and so forth from the 1990s on, Hitler's uh, Jewish victims have received the most attention. And recent studies in trauma have extended traumatic analysis to the post-war family nexus, where traumatic symptoms were sometimes evident in survivor parents and their traumatic memories were said to have been transmitted to their children in this nexus. And I think this is what Mouse certainly seems to suggest. There's now a body of work on the intergenerational transmission of trauma, which I find quite interesting. I'm skeptical about some of it, but it is. it seems to be interesting and, and 
convincing in lots of ways. And what I want to do tonight is just talk about the role that traumatic memory plays in a diasporic experience. Because of the Holocaust, I hadn't actually ever really thought about Mouse as the account of a diasporic family, but it is that. But anyway, so to begin, I'll, I just want to talk about the idea of home and how it's presented, or the originary home in Mouse. Um, many diasporic people feel very positively about home, but this is not always the case, because many people are often pushed or pulled out of their country or region of origin and are often leaving something that they don't wish to go back to. And this is the case with uh, the Spiegelmans, Art's mother, uh, Anya, and his father, Vladek. Vladek tells his son that he was very happy to leave Poland, etc. This is not surprising, of course, because of the Holocaust, and also as European Jews, Spiegelman's ancestors seldom enjoyed the sort of assimilative status, much less citizenship in a lot of places there. And in fact, the term diaspora has had its widest application in discussions of the experience of Jewish people over the last 2,000 years who have been homeless. So homelessness was a fact of life for Spiegelman ancestors who were more often than not treated as interlopers by the dominant cultures in which they found themselves. They were people whose blood quantum didn't necessarily connect them with the land, which was the ground of identity for other people in the mainstream. So it's not surprising that when Spiegelman created Mouse 1 and Mouse 2, he was most absorbed by how to depict the animals who stood in for the ethnic identities of many of the participants in the net. So he depicts the Germans as cats, the European Jews as mice, the Poles as pigs, the Americans as dogs, the Israelis as porcupines, the uh, British as fish, and so on. It's more phenotype and bloodline rather than place that informs mouse and becomes Spiegelman's focus. So in this, Spiegelman may be consciously or unconsciously reiterating the emphasis in Jewish life on blood and belonging, on the genetic exceptionalism of the Jews articulated in interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures. And there's an episode in most one where his wife, Francoise, who was actually originally French, but has converted to Judaism, He's doing mock-ups of her, and she wants. She says, "Hey, don't." He's, he thinks maybe she's French. Okay, I'll depict her as a rabbit or a frog. And she said, "No, I want to be a mouse too." And he's like, "Hmm, okay." But it's kind of an important moment where the character Art is seen as being caught up in the racial and ethnic essentialism that has marked his life in so many tragic ways. So it's the lack of connection to a homeland that makes Mouse One and Mouse Two and the other Mouse works largely genealogical projects. He reproduces pictures and biographical documents and constructs family trees from which so many fell in the early 1940s. And he dedicates most, too, to his brother Rishu, who died in the Holocaust. He's ded he dedicates it to Rishu and to his Art Spiegelman's own new daughter, Nadia, which is sort of a gesture of narrative repair or compensation for the Holocaust and the legacies thereof in the family. So I would suggest that the diasporic experience of his father and mother that's inflected by their witnessing and enduring the trauma of the Holocaust forecloses the possibility of nostalgia for a homeland or loss of a homeland that so often forms a significant part of diasporic experience. But this is something that Spiegelman tries to work through and I think he does it successfully in his uh, The Various Most Projects. Often accounts of the former home resonate in the imaginations of children of immigrants who, though they are born in the new country, construct their own idea of this place from what their parents and others in the diasporic community say and do. Uh, Art Spiegelman travels to Poland in the 1980s in order to do research for Mouse 1 and 2 because uh, uh, it's important to him to see things. Poland was mostly transmitted to him in fragments, fragments of a story that slipped out in the Polish language, which his parents used when he was a child and they didn't want him to know what they were talking about. And in one incident in Metamouse, he's art as an elementary school age child sitting in the car and his parents begin to discuss a Polish fellow, Polish American, uh, whom they're going to see, whose name is Janik, who was a Sonder commando, and uh, he worked in, for, he was forced to work in the gas chambers and crematoria. And when they realize that Art understands Polish, Vladek moves into English, and with, with his typical lack of empathy for his son, which is likely a symptom of 
Vladek's post-traumatic stress disorder. He tells them that Yannick threw Jews into the ovens and may have even put his own father and son in. And this is a kind of signal moment that can easily be read as the inculcation of what um, Marianne Hirsch has called post-memory. She defines this as the relation of the second generation to powerful, often traumatic experiences that preceded their births but that were nevertheless transmitted to them so deeply as to seem to constitute memories in their own right. So she suggests that post-memory characterizes the experience of those who grow up dominated by narratives like Vladek and Anya's story, their personal narrative of survival of genocide that preceded their birth and whose only own belated stories are evacuated by the stories of the previous generation. Given post-memory's role in constituting his idea of what his parents' life was like in Poland, he develops a kind of imaginary community from what he interprets from his father's, his, his traumatic stress symptoms. So Vladek is kind of a case study in uh, untreated PTSD in some ways, or that's how he's often read. He's very obsessed with things. He's He still copes. He has these survival skills that got him through Auschwitz and things like this. He's uh, lots of, of irritability and paranoia and things. So there is no homing desire, as it is sometimes called in diaspora studies, in this family. Homing desire is where refugee or migrant people, the, the refugee or migrant person provides a child in the new country with myths and memories of the homeland and longs for an inevitable return, or sorry, an eventual return. And there are no myths of home for art about Poland. Instead, there's the untellable story of genocide, which he does not want to hear until he is well into his adulthood. So it is a kind of an anti-home that he conveys to us in his works and depictions of extreme experience at sites where his parents long their human status. In Mouse, Poland is a gallows, a gallows, a mouse hole of ghettos and hiding places. Its streets and country roads, a mouse trap where Polish pigs often enable German cats in their genocidal predations. Or it's a hell planet, Mousewitz, he calls it, that in spite of his growing up in the United States, he is psychically imprisoned in. I would like to suggest that Poland is visited and represented in his works as part of his attempt to grapple with post-memory and its infection of his identity. He depicts himself in early adulthood as a prisoner of the hell planet, a young man just out of institutional treatment for mental illness coming out of a Manhattan subway in the uniform of the concentration camp Hoftling. Traumatic post-memory has constructed his identity in such a way that he is psychically living in Auschwitz in Poland, imprisoned in the anti-home where he has never been. In addition, in his various mappings of locales of his parents' homeland, the depictions are the terrain of of genocide, as I mentioned when I showed you the, uh, uh, the maps on the covers of various of the most editions. The graphic representations of Poland are largely cited in occupied Poland. Indeed, Spiegelman discusses the lengths to which he went in his research to produce panels that accurately render the apparatus and landscape of Auschwitz specifically, using his father's recounting of what he saw and Art's own research there in the 1980s. In Metamouse, he discusses at length the toilets where his father hid out to escape a selection and Art's engagement in debates with historians about whether or not they were wooden or installed porcelain ones. Art also compromises on whether or not to depict the famous orchestra of prisoners who played at the gate of Auschwitz, but which Vladek claims he never saw or knew of. So not surprisingly, the reception of Art's work in Poland and among Polish Americans has been pretty problematic. Mouse does contain accounts of Polish people who helped his parents survive but the depiction of the Poles as pigs has not been popular in Poland, <laughs> to say the least. There have been book burnings and uh, so forth, and he was nearly denied a visa in the 80s to go there because of it. Even though he has said, you know, this caricature of Poles as schwein, or pigs, comes from the Germans and so forth, that they didn't see the subtlety of his reappropriation of Hitler's discourse. Anyway, uh, in Metamos, he says, there seems to be something deeply problematic about the Polish ability to assimilate its past. In short, he seems unrepentant, and for some understandable reasons, but Poland as post-memory surely accounts for his attitude. I would suggest that while much of Metamouse clearly suggests the working through of his traumatic post-memory of the Holocaust, Poland remains an anti-home. 
Many diasporic subjects are often said to have a double consciousness, and this is true for the Spiegelmans. When diasporic consciousness includes traumatic memory that has not been worked through, as is the case of Vladek and likely Anya, it leaves a difficult legacy for the next generation. This traumatic memory is deeply entangled for Art in what it means to be Jewish. As he says, he was not wild about being Jewish when he was young, because of, likely because of the animalized human status that the Nazis and other Euro Europeans gave them over the centuries. Art recounts growing up in the American suburbs in the 1950s and 60s with a father who made one and only one pathetic attempt to Americanize their relationship by playing baseball with him. As Art states in Metamouse, it's only the displacements of history that dropped him from outer space into Regal Park, a suburb of New York City. Absence and the untold characterized Art's upbringing. Absence of myth, absence of extended family, the whole in memory of trauma, the occasional narrative fragment of, no of traumatic memory that slipped out of the Auschwitz self of his father. As he states with characteristic wit, my parents survived Auschwitz and moved to the suburbs. Working through the loss that produced this absence has been Art Spiegelman's life's work. Here I am making use of Dominic Lecapra's distinction between absence and loss, which is connected to the work visited upon second-generation survivors in the diaspora of mourning the overwhelming losses that many of their parents were unable to mourn. Interestingly, the same thing went on in post-war Germany. The impact of personal and cultural trauma <clears throat> have been widely explored in academic and clinical studies over the last century or so. Recent studies of cultural trauma have adapted some aspects of Sigmund Freud's distinction between mourning and melancholia, the latter defined as an incomplete or arrested or prolonged mourning process. Instead of the satisfactory working through of loss, which Freud defines as mourning, melancholia is characterized by psychic psychic haunting manifested in displacement, cathecting, and acting out of conflicted and repressed psychic content. This is the work I think that Spiegelman has accomplished in, in his works, not works of melancholia, I would suggest, but works of genuine works of mourning. In the 1960s, Alexander and Margaret Mitscherli, a German sociologist, produced a landmark study of the culturally inhibiting effects of the German war generation's inability to mourn the loss of Hitler and the fantasies of, of omnipotence that he represented because they had not faced up to, much less taken responsibility for his dark legacy. Not working through such loss, they claimed, had created a cultural malaise in the post-war period. Indebted to the Mitchellies, Paul Gilroy recently diagnosed a post-imperial melancholia in some quarters of contemporary British society. He characterizes some responses to the terrorism of 9-11 and the July 7, 2005 two bombings as part of an incomplete mourning for a lost imperial status. This kind of analysis, I think, is important in a discussion of Art Spiegelman's work and as a diasporic work. <clears throat> some forms of traumatic loss have been identified as forms of working through that can be put into the service of the attempt to establish a better present and future, such as confessional acts like bearing witness, reconciliatory or restitutional work, and activist work. While such mourning practices can never completely cure or transcend the wounds of trauma, nor should they, they can help embody the ghosts of the past and engage them in constructing the foundations of a better future. But when loss is converted into, or encrypted, and I'm quoting here, encrypted into an indiscriminately generalized rhetoric of absence, one faces the impasse of endless melancholy, impossible mourning, and interminable aporia in which any process of working through the past and its historical losses is foreclosed or prematurely aborted. Art as a second generation survivor seems to me to have taken the absences in his life, the anti-home, his parents' melancholia, rather than nostalgia, the displacements that put him on the hell planet, and made his life's work the work of mourning. Metamouse, in its multivocality, he interviews in this recent work, he interviews, he's interviewed, he's in dialogue with various people, his wife is interviewed, his children write something for it, and it seems to me that he has accomplished something. Therein, in Metamouse, he states that the purpose of his book is a kind of closure without forgetting, and I think that's what he has achieved in in his art. Thank you. Our second speaker for tonight is Judy Fong Bates. Judy came to Canada from China as a young child and grew up in several small Ontario towns. 
She's a writer, storyteller, and teacher. Her stories have been broadcast on CBC Radio and published in literary journals and anthologies. She's the author of the critically acclaimed short story collection China Dog and Other Stories and the novel Midnight at the Dragon's Cafe, which was the Everybody Reads selection for Portland, Oregon. Um, it was also the 2001 One Book Community Read for the City of Toronto. Her family memoir, The Year of Finding Memory, was published in 2010 by Random House. Judy. <laughs> Good evening. First of all, many thanks to Cheyenne for inviting me to be a part of this um, panel. It's um, wonderful to be here in uh, BC and to be visiting Vancouver, once again one of my favorite cities. When Cheyenne approached me about sitting on a panel that would be discussing stress and trauma in the diaspora community, I, I have to confess that I was very honored and flattered to be a part of something so um, important and uh, weighty, and so I agreed. However, the more I thought about it, I, I must confess that the, the colder my feet became, because I realized that this was not a light topic, and that for something of this magnitude, that I would indeed have to say something profound. And so I began to feel stressed and traumatized. <laughs> Nevertheless, I knew that I did have something to add to this discussion. What I had to add would, would not be in any way quantitative. I'm not a social scientist, so the way that I would be looking at things would be not to study, and it would not be to analyze or to compare or to measure. I knew that my contributions would, in fact, be organic. And because I am a writer, my examination is never direct. And I would, in fact, look at things through a many-layered and shifting lens called story. And so I had to ask myself where to begin. And the first question, I guess won't surprise you since I'm a writer, is that I decided to start with the dictionary. The Canadian Oxford categorizes trauma as a a physical wound or injury. The physical shock following this characterized by a drop in temperature, mental confusion, etc. But what interested me was the psychological category, which was divided into two parts. One, emotional shock following a stressful event, sometimes leading to long-term neuroses. Two, a distressing or emotionally disturbing experience. Now, the definition in the English Oxford is even more precise. Under psychoanalytical psychiatry, it says trauma is a psychic injury, especially one caused by emotional shock, the memory of which is suppressed and remains unhealed. In my family memoir, The Year of Finding Memory, I open with my father's suicide in 1972. I call it a family memoir, the story of my parents. But it is, in fact, more than that. It is also an attempt to unravel the mystery of why my father killed himself. My father came to Canada in 1914. He was a poor man. He was from a village near the coast of the South China Sea. He was one of the Chinese who paid the $500 head tax. And after arriving in Canada, he returned to China five times, each time intending to stay, but each time forced to return to Canada because of economic needs, and the last time because of history, because of the communist takeover of China. My mother and I came in 1955, not because she wanted to, but because she felt she had no choice. She told me time and again that she came to this God-forsaken country only because of me. She came to the small Ontario town where she was for several years the only Chinese woman and where I was the only Chinese child. She came to a place where she didn't speak the language, where the culture was foreign, where the climate was cold, and where her husband eked out a living washing other people's clothes. She came to a place where we were without a telephone and a car and far away from the big city that had a Chinatown. She suffered so that I might have a better life. When I was 16, 
I said to a friend that I was going to write a book. I told her that it was going to be about my mother. Even at that early age, I knew that my mother's early life had all the elements of a good story. She was born in 1912, and when she was three, her herbalist father had her betrothed to the son of a well-to-do family. She was married at age 16 to a handsome young man, and she should have had a good life. But this man, who turned out to be bad, or as my mother used to say, very no good, (laughs) he was a gambler and an opium addict. And worse, he mistreated her. But my mother, she was strong-willed and resourceful. And even though it was early 20th century China, she ran away from the marriage, eventually ending up as a schoolteacher in a remote village in southern China. She was hired by a man who had returned from Canada, from the Gold Mountain. The man was also married with three children. That man would one day become my father. Was there something between them? I don't know. I still don't know. And after two or three years, she left my father's village to go to school in Nanking to learn about the silkworm industry. All of this underwritten by her wealthy brother, who was a high-ranking official in the Kuomintang. But after only a few years in Nanking, she managed to take the last train from Nanking to Shanghai and board the last boat out of Shanghai to Canton, barely missing the infamous massacre. She returned to live with her rich brother and his family in his fabulous mansion. But when the Japanese marched into Canton in 1938, she was forced to return to her very no-good husband. And she ended up having a daughter, my half-sister. But my mother didn't stay with her very no-good man for very long. So circumstances must have been pretty grim for her to leave during such a dangerous time. I grew up on stories about the cruelty of the Japanese soldiers, about how she and her daughter hid in caves and abandoned buildings, and how they would peek through the cracks, and how she would watch the Japanese soldiers spearing their victims or slicing a pregnant woman's body, and how she barely escaped being discovered. When the war ended, my mother found out that my father's wife had died and that he was stranded in Canada for the entire war. My mother then hatched a plan to marry my father. I should have known that the events in my parents' early lives had the elements of a page-turning story, a strong-willed heroine, illicit love, danger, an exotic locale, all against the backdrop of war. When my mother spoke about her life back home, it was in technicolor. The woman in her stories bore no resemblance to the woman in my father's hand laundry. This was a story that needed to be told. So why did it take me almost 40 years after making this pronouncement to my friend to bring this story to fruition? After my father killed himself, my family never talked about it. The closest we came was to say the way he died. As I now look back, I realize that one of the reasons it took me so long to write my mother's story, and thus the story of my parents, had to do with my father's suicide. It now seems so obvious. Like all of my family, I had been traumatized. I had a wound that I ignored and never allowed to heal. I remember trying to come up with ways that I could tell the story without confronting this devastating event and loss of face. I could end the story with my father's return to China, end it on an optimistic note, and yet I couldn't. It seems so obvious to say that suicide traumatizes a family. Those who are left behind Never stop asking why. My father was 80 years old. Although he was not a happy man, things had settled into a state of equilibrium. Why could he not give us a peaceful ending? And again, I speculate. As I look back, I I begin to appreciate 
how the act of relocation for my parents into a culture that was foreign to them both had over time changed and reduced them. All those years of feeling powerless, isolated by culture, language, poverty, and racism, being betrayed by history, left them both shells of what they had been in China. My father spent years chained to work that was grueling, degrading, and monotonous. They found themselves separated from mainstream culture and distanced from their own children. For my parents, trauma came not just in large blows, but small daily ones that accumulated over time and eroded each of them. Did my father kill himself simply because he had had enough, I still don't know. As a young adult, I remember feeling that my almost total involvement with mainstream white culture carried with it a whiff of betrayal of my Chinese roots. And yet, there was little I could do about it. I was who I was. My parents also felt ambivalence. On the one hand, they were concerned that I was becoming too Canadian, too much like the Lofons. On the other hand, my parents were proud of how well I spoke English and how easily I navigated my way in this world that was strange to them. By the time I was six, my fluency in English had surpassed that of my father's. More and more, my parents relied on me to translate and negotiate. But in spite of what seemed to be total acculturation into Canadian society, certain doubts prickled under my skin. By being so at ease in this new culture, was I somehow abandoning my parents, their values, and where they were from? Was I, in fact, adding to what was their cumulative trauma? And so, there I was, an immigrant kid, living between two worlds, knowing that I didn't belong in the world of my parents, but wondering about my position in mainstream culture here in Canada, the country I call home. My parents suffered and sacrificed so much for me. For many years, I had always felt that whatever trauma my parents had suffered in their past lives belonged to them. I was willing to acknowledge it. And yes, it was fascinating, but I was unaffected. Since arriving in Canada as a five-year-old, my subconscious goal had been to fit in. It was a survival strategy. Sure, I suffered my share of racial taunts, but I sloughed it off. I was not about to let anyone get the better of me. I saw myself as someone who rose out of the ashes of my parents' sacrifice. I would move on unscathed. I didn't want any of that old world baggage. It felt dirty. I was a Canadian. It was only in midlife with perspective that is gained through years of living that I began to realize that this is not so. I can no longer deny the emotional inheritance that came with the trauma suffered by my parents. It is as much a part of me as the blood that courses through my veins. I used to think that the main reason for my late start as a writer had to do mostly with the oppressions of the times during which I grew up. And this is to a degree true, but it is so much more complex. The trauma that both my parents suffered throughout their lives, my father's suicide, all serve as emotional and psychological obstacles to my becoming a writer, and perhaps explains why I bloom so late. It has taken me many years, but I now know that it was through my parents' suffering and our lives as immigrants in a small town in Ontario that I found my voice as a writer. The stress and trauma that defeated my parents has ironically fed my creative life. My parents left me a huge burden of gratitude, which I gladly carry. It has become a gift. Um, Tamiya Wakayama was born in uh, New Westminster in 1941 and spent his early childhood in the Tashime, B.C. internment camp. 
1963, he joined the civil rights movement in the American South. Upon his return to Canada, he published Signs of Life. Later, when he ended his exile and returned to the West Coast, he helped assemble Dream of Riches, the Japanese-Canadians, 1877 to 1977, a photographic reconstruction of the memory of the Nikkei community, which toured in Canada and Japan. His most recent works are the exhibits and books Kikyo, Coming Home to Powell Street, a celebration of the Nikkei renewal and rebirth, and This Light of Ours, activist photo photographers of the civil rights movement. In addition, his images and essays have been featured in numerous books, magazines, exhibits, posters, and TV and film documentaries. Tamio. Thank you, Cheyenne. Uh, Cheyenne asked me to bring along some of my photographs, so I, uh, my wife and I, who thankfully is the techie in our family, put together a small selection from uh, hopefully a uh, major retrospective exhibit and a uh, final autobiography called uh, Soul on Rice. Anyway, uh, good evening and uh, thank you uh, for coming. As Cheyenne said, I was born in 1941 and I was the fifth and final addition to a uh, pioneering immigrant family that had settled in the Fraser Valley. Nine months after my birth, uh, my government decided what, that I was an enemy alien. And so I was carried in my mother's arms into the cattle stalls of Hastings Park, uh, now the site of the PE. And we were part of the community of some 22,000 Nikkei or Japanese Canadians who had been dispossessed of their homes and the accumulated wealth of a lifetime were rounded up and eventually sent off to a uh, number of internment camps in the interior of BC. And as Cheyenne said, my family and I uh, spent the war years in Tashmi, uh, which was the largest of the camps just outside the town of Hope, ironically named. After the war, the Nikkei confronted two choices. One was to accept deportation to Japan, uh, the other was to relocate east of the Rockies. Going home to the West Coast was not an option, for our homes and property had been sold without our knowledge or permission and the uh, funds used to pay for our incarceration. Now, uh, the choices that uh, my family faced at the end of the war uh, meant the dissolution of our tight family clan. Uh, my grandparents, along uh, with uh, one daughter and one son, returned to Japan while the rest of us uh, boarded the train to begin our eastern migration. It was my family and those of my two uncles. One uncle got off at Winnipeg to try his fortune in that city, and the rest of us continued eastward, and eventually we settled in uh, Chatham, Ontario, which is about 50 miles. It's a small farming community about 50 miles from Windsor, Detroit. And ironically, it was the final destination slave escaping during the uh, Civil War period. And in fact, within a block or two of, my of, of our home that I grew up in, our public markers saying this was the site where John Brown brought uh, the slaves and it was the terminus of the Underground uh, Railroad. Now, there's been a lot uh, written about the war years and the uh, draconian treatment of Japanese Canadians, but very little is known about their lives once the camps closed and I think it's rather unfortunate because uh, my feeling is that it was in this period of the Nikkei diaspora that we suffered the greatest damage both individually and collectively and this was particularly true for those of us who were children during that uh, difficult period and the uh, effects of that trauma continues to reverberate in our lives today. Now, to fully uh, understand uh, the full impact, one must remember that in our eastern migration, we were still branded as enemy aliens. And to buttress this official designation, the mass media of the day had gone into full uh, production to present a caricature of the Japanese as cruel, 
treacherous, a uh, subhuman species, physically repulsive, that was the very embodiment of evil. And in countless Hollywood films, we were the hated enemy, the Japs, who were mowed down by the righteous white uh, soldiers of the Allied armies. So what was the reaction of the uh, Nikkei to, uh, to this uh, rather troublesome situation? Well, unfortunately and predictably, it was one of self-effacement. I remember growing up in Chatham that I hated being Japanese and I wanted so very desperately to be John Wayne. Tall, <laughs> handsome, heroic, uh, and above all else white. The very embodiment of all that was good and noble. But damn, you know, every time I looked in the mirror, there was only this forlorn face of a Jap looking at me. So uh, the tipping point in my life came in the year 1963. I had just finished the third year of an honors English and philosophy program at the University of Western Ontario. And sitting across from me in one of my English classes was Natasha Jones. Now, as the daughter of a uh, Russian uh, emigre, Natasha was a beautiful and fiery uh, Russian goddess uh, with whom I fell hopelessly in love with. Unfortunately, uh, Miss Jones, the daughter of a very conservative Mr. Jones, had no idea how to deal with this strange new suitor. And this uh, tragic comedy continued on uh, until finally at the end of the year, Miss Jones announced that Natasha, regrettably, would not be riding off with me into the Canadian sunset. Well, I was absolutely crushed because I didn't know whether uh, our romance had died because of my inexperience and ineptitude in the uh, mysterious rituals of courtship which I was ill-equipped uh, to uh, handle or whether uh, our love had uh, foundered on uh, the hidden shoals of race which I suspected but didn't really know. What I did know was that rejection was a horribly painful and humiliating thing to endure so I uh, managed to get through that night with the help of uh, two friends who plied me with liberal amounts of Crown Royal. And the next morning, hungover and heartbroken, I returned home to Chatham to lick my wounds. Now, that summer, I borrowed $800 from my mother and bought a 1958 blue Volkswagen Beetle, which enabled me to uh, get one of the most highly uh, coveted jobs in the city, which was uh, top testers for Libby's. Now, despite this wonderful job of uh, traipsing around the uh, countryside, I was in a total stupor and longing for my lost love, and the only thing that could break through this pall of depression was this very compelling drama that was unfolding in the southern United States, and I remember one day in particular coming home and turning on the TV set and watching ten young black students entering a forbidden lunch counter in Danville, Virginia. Now, they were very well-dressed in shirt and tie, and they were very calm when they took their seat at counter, while all around them was this maelstrom of racial violence. And they remained calm, even when raw eggs, coat, and uh, coffee were poured over their heads. And when one of the local hoodlums would grab one of the uh, demonstrators and throw him to the ground, uh, he would go into a, a defensive uh, fetal position. And when the violence uh, subsided, he would simply pick himself up and very calmly take a seat uh, at the counter. And this continued until the cops arrived and uh, hauled off their uh, limp and unresisting bodies into the waiting paddy wagon. Well, I was totally mesmerized. I mean, those students that day, to me, were an immense presence. Uh, and I understood in a very deep and still unnamed part of me the essence of their struggle, which went to the very heart of my life and my own dilemmas. So, at the end of the summer, I uh, said to my mother, well, I've worked hard over the past few months, and I'm going to take a short vacation to uh, to the States before uh, returning for my final year. So I threw a, um, a sleeping bag and a small knapsack into the back of the Beetle and sped off for the border in Detroit. Uh, I had arrived on the second day in Nashville, Tennessee, and I spent the morning in a kind of desultory tour 
of the uh, state capitol buildings. And as my wife will attest, I am a very indifferent tourist, so I was uh, horribly bored by this tour. And as I returned to my car, I was thinking, wow, well, geez, what am I doing so far away from home? And maybe it's time I, uh, I woke up and returned and uh, enrolled in uh, university. So I uh, went back to my car and uh, was headed for the highway when all of a sudden on my car radio, the Lamentations of the Grand Old Opry was interrupted by a flash news bulletin. Uh, that morning in Birmingham, Alabama, a bomb had exploded in the 16th Avenue Baptist Church where um, Bible classes were being held for the children of the congregation. Many were injured, and at that point, uh, it was known that four young girls had died in the explosion. Well, I checked my maps and saw that uh, Birmingham was a straight shot south uh, down the freeway about 200 miles distant. So I turned around and headed in that direction. I arrived in uh, Birmingham in the early evening and as I uh, rode down this uh, pleasant uh, boulevard uh, leading to the downtown area, uh, I had the very eerie sensation that I was entering a ghost town because this uh, southern metropolis on a pleasantly warm uh, fall evening uh, with gentle southern breeze stirring the magnolia trees was practically deserted. Uh, mine was about the only vehicle on the street. Uh, the sidewalk was bereft of the usual stream of pedestrians. Stores, uh, restaurants, theaters were all dark and shuttered. Uh, I'd been driving all day, so I was desperate to, uh, to find some place to get some food and coffee in me. And so a few blocks later, I was rewarded by the sight of one storefront that seemed to be open. So I uh, pulled in behind this pickup truck, which is emblazoned with the uh, old Confederate flags and bumper stickers extolling the virtues of white America. Uh, and when I went in, I was gratified to see that it was indeed a restaurant, one of those ubiquitous uh, southern barbecue joints. And uh, sitting around the room were uh, five men, which to my eyes, uh, they looked very big and very black. And as I took my seat at the counter, I could feel five sets of eyes boring into my back. Uh, I ordered the uh, special combination plate and after devouring this heavenly mound of meat, I uh, leaned back and lit up an after-dinner cigarette. And I noticed that the young uh, counter helper, a black teenager, was uh, curiously eyeing my uh, red pack of Demorier. So I picked it up and I said, here, have one. They're uh, Canadian cigarettes. So they're totally different from, from American brands, but give it a go. So that broke the and uh, pretty soon the owner came over uh, and for the uh, next uh, half hour or so he gave me an introductory course on what it meant to be black uh, in the deep south and after this horrific account of uh, daily humiliations that could so easily uh, lead to uh, violence and even death at the hands of a lynch mob he said to me well he said we appreciate y'all coming down here, but uh, I think you should get back in your little car and uh, drive on back home. And when you get there, you tell all your Canadian friends that what they've been seeing on the TV and reading about all the bombings and lynchings and beatings, the fire hoses and the police dogs, that is all very real. And it'd be happening every day. So, but you be careful leaving you here, because that truck you pulled behind belongs to the clan, because they're keeping uh, close watching us, because we're about the only place open this night, and when you leave, they might begin to wonder, well, who is that strange boy in there? And they may pull you over to the side of the road, and God knows what could happen at that point. Well, I thanked him profusely for the good advice, <laughs> and uh, uh, went back to my car and uh, managed to make it to the uh, downtown YMCA without further incident. And after checking in, I remember there was this very uh, thin, frail, white-haired bellhop wheezing with the attempt of carrying my light knapsack, uh, escorting me to my room. And as we rolled up the elevator, uh, he looked up at me with his sad, tired eyes, and he said, you know, it's not always like this 
in Birmingham. Well, I got to my room and uh, being exhausted, I fell asleep to the sounds of gunfire and sirens, which apparently went on all throughout that night. The next morning, I wandered over to the uh, AG Gaston Motel. In my uh, previous conversation with the restaurant owner, I learned that that was where all the civil rights workers streaming into the city, uh, that's where they would be gathering. And indeed, as I entered the lobby, it was already filling up with uh, a large number of people. Many of them were the young dungaree-clad workers of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And then I spotted John Lewis, their young chairman. So I went over and introduced myself and to tell him quite sincerely uh, how deeply impressed I had been by his uh, speech at that summer's uh, historic march on Washington. Now, this uh, American hero, who in later years uh, became an uh, American congressman and uh, is known today as the conscience of the Congress, turned out to be a remarkably gentle and unassuming soul, and one would never guess from uh, his very uh, quiet demeanor that here was a person of immense courage, of profound faith, which sustained them through countless uh, confrontations with white mobs on the Freedom Rides and later on the uh, Selma March. Well, John and I talked for a long time because he was very virtually kind of generous. And before leaving, he invited me to visit SNCC headquarters in Atlanta. And then he took me around and introduced me to uh, his fellow SNCC workers. So um, for the remainder of my time in Birmingham, I uh, stayed at the uh, Gaston Motel, crashing at night in one of the rooms allocated to SNCC and, uh, and sharing the buckets of food brought over by one of the ladies' auxiliary groups of, uh, of the local church. In Atlanta, I continued to hang around the SNCC office, trying to make myself as useful as possible, cleaning out the office at night and during the day, driving people to and from demonstrations in the city jail. And after about a month, month or so, I was asked to, uh, invited to join the SNCC headquarters staff uh, with a weekly subsistence allowance of $10. And that was one of the proudest moments of my young life, for now I was officially a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was the proud vanguard of the civil rights movement that was radically transforming the uh, social and political dynamic of not only America, but indeed of the whole world. And I stayed with SNCC for two years working in various parts of the Deep South. I learned to be a photographer in the terror and beauty of the Mississippi Delta. When I left, I wasn't quite the same person that had wandered into Birmingham that fateful Sunday. There was still miles to go, uh, many more discoveries to be made, uh, obstacles to be overcome. But at least now I had begun the long journey toward uh, redemption and empowerment. And I consider myself truly blessed that at a critical point in my life, uh, I happened to wander into one of the most luminous moments of uh, contemporary American history. And I shall always be grateful to my brothers and sisters in the movement for welcoming me into their midst. And uh, together, in the immortal words of Muhammad, Ali, we indeed did shake up the world. On my uh, return to Canada, I continued to be actively involved in just about all the major political and social uh, movements of that remarkable decade. And when the age of uh, activism gave way to the age of Aquarius, I went on a year-long pilgrimage to uh, Japan, and the insights and epiphanies mined from the ancestral soil were like a bridge that brought me back to the West Coast where my life had begun. And in Vancouver, I joined up with my ethnic peers and together we undertook a very uh, joyful and tremendously creative uh, rebirth of our community in the old Powell Street area, which was once the center of a thriving pre-war community of Little Tokyo. That year, we mounted a major exhibit, A Dream of Riches, uh, the Japanese-Canadians, 1877 to 1977. And in so doing, we uh, recaptured our, our own history by telling our own story 
which according to liberation theory is the first important step towards freedom. That exhibit was the opening salvo in many ways of the redress movement and it has now been seen in over 40 venues in uh, the States, Canada and Japan. That year we also mounted uh, quite successfully the first Powell Street Festival, uh, which was a celebration of our renewal and uh, a celebration of our victory over a century of racism. Now, the festival continues uh, to this day as a uh, celebration of Nikkei life and culture and as a reminder of our proud history and heritage. Okay, that's it. Thanks very much. I'm afraid we're out of time, unfortunately. (laughs) So there is no time for questions. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Janet. Thank you, Tamio. I think it was a kind of a a, a, a sort of a vast spectrum of of opinions and uh, genres on the the question of, of trauma and diaspora. Thank you all for coming.